You're listening to Weld Found, a podcast about belonging in an age of social isolation and disconnection. And when I wrote that tagline for this show last August, I did not realize how appropriate it would be for us in these coming weeks. <laughs> By the way, now would be a great time to catch up on episodes you've missed. Enjoy some compelling stories that help you feel connected. Things have changed rapidly with COVID-19. I'm making this announcement intro for the podcast in my house on Friday, March 20th, instead of at the office at the Weld Community Foundation. You can hear my kids yelling. They are upstairs in the kitchen area. We are doing what we can to make sure we help our healthcare teams and hospitals stay strong during this time. I believe this is going to have a positive impact. If you're like me, you're reading everything you can online and you see that this is going to help. This podcast has been about building community where you live and experiencing true connections and localizing. And though we are physically distancing at this time, I feel like these things are more important now than ever. You are in this together with me, with your town, your county, your network of life, and we're going to get through this. We're going to stay a true community. Today, I'm featuring a show that I had ready a couple weeks ago. This one was done before things with the virus escalated, and I held off on releasing it because it wasn't where the public conversation was at, but I'm releasing it now because the content here is spot on. It still speaks to our new reality we're experiencing today, like really well. We're having Dr. Josh Packard back to talk about loneliness and relationships that help overcome that loneliness, being noticed, named, and known the good news is this is something we can reach for even when we are apart. A few quick announcements. When a natural disaster occurs, like a flood or a tornado, I often find myself wondering, what can I do to help? More specifically, where do I give my donations to, to support things locally? The place I work, the Weld Community Foundation, has partnered with the United Way of Weld County. We're launching a fund called Weld Recovers, and it's for COVID-19 relief. This fund will aid nonprofits and programs serving those impacted by the crisis. So let's say you have a young woman, a single mother, and she gets laid off from her job because this crisis is affecting everything. We are already seeing this. She can't afford rent, and she's having trouble getting food for her and her daughter. When you give to this fund, when you give to Weld Recovers, your money will be supporting agencies like the Weld Food Bank or Women to Women so that someone like this young mother will be able to get the support she needs. The work of our nonprofits is going to escalate in the coming days. I myself have been buying from local businesses this week, and in order to keep my focus on supporting my community, I'm turning my attention to our nonprofits now as well. They are ready to face this. Will you help them? Go to weldcommunityfoundation.org to donate to the Weld Recovers Fund. And please spread the word, share the link online. To get things rolling, the Weld Community Foundation is giving an initial gift of $75,000 to the Weld Recovers Fund. Along those lines, my wife and I do art and music projects under the name of Giants and Pilgrims. We're doing a live concert on Sunday evening at 7 p.m. as a fundraiser for Weld Recovers. Tune in on Facebook and look up Giants and Pilgrims or Timothy Coons if you'd like to watch. It's our effort not just to raise money, but to feel like we are all staying connected in this together. 
Last thing is a heads up. We're playing the season two opening story for you again. It's a five minute piece called The Overview Effect. You may have heard it before if you downloaded that episode recently. I'm including it now because the idea of The Overview Effect helps me grow in compassion for my neighbors. So I'm hoping this opening segment is centering for you as well. Let's begin the show. Imagine with me for a moment. You're a passenger on a rocket ship from NASA with a group of astronauts. You're leaving your home, your city, your county, your country, and heading up into the sky, through the atmosphere, into space. And you break through to the other side. And while you're hovering in the vastness, you take a moment to look back and see Earth. The blue of ocean, the white of clouds, the browns and greens of land. You see flashing lightning and rainstorms. You witness illuminated cities. A lot of us can imagine this because we've seen pictures. The first popular color photo of our planet is called Earthrise was taken December 24th, 1968. It's considered one of the most important photos ever taken because this is fairly new, being able to see, to have this actual view of Earth. And over these years of exploration, it was new to the astronauts too. So how do you think you'd feel looking back at Earth? Would you be full of awe and wonder? Would you be moved to prayer like astronaut Roger B. Chaffee? Or would you tear up like Alan Shepard? Last year, I heard about this phenomenon called the overview effect. Since humankind has been exploring space, astronauts have come back and have reported this overwhelming experience while gazing at our home, at Earth. The overview effect is defined like this. It's a cognitive shift in awareness while viewing the Earth from outer space. It is the experience of seeing firsthand the reality of Earth, how fragile it is, floating there, hanging in the void. And from space, national boundaries seem to vanish. The conflicts that divide people become less important. And the need to band together and protect this pale blue dot becomes obvious. There's a long list of astronauts who've reported experiencing this, so many so that Frank Wright coined the term the overview effect, wrote a book about it in 1987. Edgar Mitchell of Apollo 14 said, you develop an instant global consciousness, a people orientation, an intense dissatisfaction with the state of the world and a compulsion to do something about it. From out there on the moon, international politics look so petty Another astronaut said, the first day or so, we all pointed to our countries. The third or fourth day, we were pointing to our continents. By the fifth day, we were aware only of one Earth. Alan Shepard said, I realized up there that our planet is not infinite, it's fragile. 
That may not be obvious to a lot of folks, and it's tough that people are fighting each other here on Earth instead of trying to get together and live on this planet. We look pretty vulnerable in the darkness of space. The overview effect is essentially these astronauts looking at this small marble hanging in space and saying, that's it, that's all of us. Our histories of art and governance and music and writing, all the scientific discoveries and human ingenuity, we're obviously in this together. This podcast is about belonging, about being a true part of community. And we know that for the past 20 or 30 years, we've been really good at dividing, at isolating ourselves from people who aren't like us, creating bubbles and cliques and echo chambers. And we are in the right and we are morally outraged by the actions of others, making villains of our very neighbors. We do this online, in our homes, neighborhoods, friend groups, churches, politics. But we can take a moment to stop, just stop, and see the big picture, the overview. There's a national conversation going on, saying that we are in an epidemic of social isolation and disconnection. And studies show that loneliness is being encountered at unbelievable levels. And there's a direct correlation. The more we are sorting ourselves by our differences and divisions, the more lonely we are becoming. As we look at what belonging means, and we head from space back to our state, our county, our residence, we can carry this big picture alongside anything we do locally and know that we are in this together. Welcome, my friends, to Weldfound. When we began Weldfound, we started with an episode called Out of the Garage and Into the Neighborhood. It's our most downloaded. That was our episode one, and our guest was sociologist from UNC, Dr. Josh Packard. Since then, we've had him on the show several times. He's been a reoccurring guest, giving helpful commentary towards community and belonging. In this way, I wanted to feature him near the beginning of our season two, this time speaking on loneliness, like on a personal level. How is it that people seem to be experiencing this to such a high degree? What's going on? And better yet, is there anything that we can do about it? Josh gets into this and reveals some really helpful things he's finding in his research. You're going to hear rich content in today's show that not only speaks to where we're at right now in our culture, but also some ways that we can potentially help make things better, actually build community. Here's Dr. Josh Packard. Yeah, I love the, the opportunity to come on at the beginning of season one and sort of help frame, you know, what community and isolation exclusion look like from a sociological standpoint was uh, was great. I was teaching social community at the time, and, you know, these things were right top of mind for me. And <clears throat> a lot of what I've been doing since then has actually been sort of focusing on that isolation and exclusion, but from a more micro level, like what what is it that happens to not our communities, but like what happens to you and me? You know, when, when we get excluded from a place or from a situation. And uh, that brings me a little bit um, out of field somewhat to a more like psychology, uh, neuroscience place, because there's a really interesting thing that happens 
in your brain when you get excluded, when you get left out of a group. It's something as simple as, you know, uh, even the perception of being left out. So like you, uh, you know, you encounter a group of people that you think are talking about you, even if they're not, or if you don't know that they are, you can perceive it as that they're not. Um, and the, that feeling that you have there of being excluded gets processed in the same part of your brain as pain, as physical pain. So it's, you are literally experiencing social exclusion as a response in the same way as if somebody like dropped a hammer on your foot, which I think is just fascinating and heartbreaking in a lot of ways. The, there's a whole lot of nuances that go on in, in these findings and about the ways that people are investigating them and trying to unravel them. But that's the, that's, the, that's the best way to sort of sum it up for now. And what is really interesting about this is the, like, when we think about how we are and who we are, like the, one of the questions in the backs of our brain should always be, why are we this way? Why have we evolved to this point? What's, what is the utility to us as humans for experiencing social exclusion as a form of pain? And the people who study this, you know, it takes them it takes them back to like, well, why do we have any pain? You know, when you hold your finger close to a fire or if you've ever, you know, accidentally touched a hot pan or something, you get this immediate pain response, which in some ways you might think is like, well, that stinks that I have this pain, but it's a safety thing. It tells you like, pull, pull your hand away from this really hot pot before you do some lasting real damage. Um, and that's largely what is going on with the feeling of pain from social exclusion as well. Is that, we are such social creatures that we need a dramatic and instant sort of pain response to being left out to remind us like, this is not sustainable, we can't do this, you're about to really hurt yourself if you keep going down this path. And so the sense of pain that we feel of being left out of a group is actually a protective mechanism. It's intended, right, to guide us back towards like social sustainable interactions and relationships with people. And for a long period of time, maybe up until now, that's about all we needed because we had all the coping mechanisms in place, blah, blah, blah. And it was like, you know, not physically possible in many ways to stay excluded, you would die. What's so weird about 2020, I think, in this context is that um, people, you know, for a variety of options, some being having to do with technology and, and some just about social patterns, we, we can choose the other route. So in the midst of the pain that we feel from social exclusion, we can choose to exclude ourselves further. We can actually live alone, even though we are not designed or intended to. I would even say it's a part of our American culture to be a unique individual who is um, expressing themselves and who they're meant to be. Um, yeah. And it, that's found in all of our slogans, uh, you know, from, from Burger King, have it your way or whatever to, um, to even like, like all of our art and songs and talk about being, baby, you're a firework, like right. you are alone. Um, and you, <laughs> you're a firework. You're, you're, yeah. You glow, you burn yeah. bright. And it's, it's, it's not Davy Crockett, like, you know, venerable family man, member of the community. It's king of the wild frontier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if the, if the clear established science around 
what happens in your brain when you're excluded is that it's felt as physical pain. There's still all of this work that's being done, A, to solidify that, but B, mostly like what are the effects or impacts of that? So what are people's pain responses in terms of social pain? We know what your pain response is in terms of like a broken arm or a, you know, a hammer being dropped on your foot. The, we scream and you hop around for a while, right? But in, in response to these kinds of social pains, what they're documenting, what scientists have been uncovering is that this intense form of retreatism. So it is this like tribing up. Um, what 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 they would what scientists what social scientists call network closure, so it makes you less like every time it happens to you or every time that you perceive that it's happening to you, it makes you that much less likely to step outside of your network again. So we can see here in this like in this very micro way the macro level thing that we were talking about at the beginning of last season, which is like, well, what does this look like for our community? Well, it looks like a whole bunch of people, right, who are n- not necessarily unwilling, but at the same time not seeking out this network openness where they're they're actually wanting to encounter strangers and have conversations with them and talking instead network closure means that you sort of are afraid of it's like a it's it's like a lifestyle of stranger danger which is cool for five-year-olds right um but doesn't go over so well when you're an adult trying to live you know in a way that is a flourishing life inside of a community that is that is thriving i think you're putting words to a ton of what I've seen on Facebook. Yeah. I, I, though, you know, so I think the big clarification for what I've seen, and I want to make, but I'm happy to talk about Facebook, is the social media becomes this really intensified setting where we see this play out. I don't, I, I don't see it being a cause, right? But it's this, it is very much this context where you're like, ooh, it distills and clarifies all the n- sort of nuances of these things in a way that makes them very apparent. So what, what do you mean? What do you, what do you see on Facebook that makes you feel this way? Constant network closure. Uh, constant network yeah. defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, network defense, yeah. Yeah. Posting of like tribing up and I see the moral outrage is very strong. <laughs> and yeah. I see it on both sides. Uh, coming from church world and, and, uh, and also being an artist, like I have, I have friends who are extreme left and I have friends who are extreme right. What I think is interesting about Facebook is that because of the ways that so many of those networks are created, which is like, here's people I went to high school with, right? They're not necessarily like people that you agree with, right? So a lot of people have stuff on their Facebook feed that makes them feel like they have this really open and inclusive network, but then they're not really doing the work to examine their responses necessarily. Like, oh yeah, that person's in my feed and I hate every single thing that they post because they're wrong ever, right? Um, the the it's called uh, what, what the scientists who who study the brain response here is called advice discounting. So what happens like if you think that you've been left out of a group, like let's say you're Democrat and you think the Republicans are leaving you out of their conversations, they don't understand you and they're not listening, or vice versa, right? The really crazy thing that happens here is that clearly, obviously, you're not interested in taking advice from them, right? Because okay, that's not that's not news. But, but what is news is that you become then less likely to take advice or listen to anyone. That is super interesting. So that the only kind of, because you've been taught or you've taught yourself through this feeling of social exclusion and how that pain gets processed for you and you want to avoid that pain, that you can either hear only the things that you've already heard and accept them, or every new thing that you hear has to come from multiple credible sources. But like your default over time becomes not to trust any individual, whether they're associated with the group that's explicitly leaving you out or whether they're just an unknown. And that becomes really difficult to, you know, bridge those kinds of gaps when you start building up those kind of walls. 
I, I think this is such a, I don't know, maybe this is just like the trained social scientist in me, but those, those kinds of things when people are like, you know, don't trust anyone or, you know, don't, don't let people change you. And I'm like, why? Like, maybe, you know, there are a lot of people in my life that I super trust. And if I, like, if, if they told me to change, I probably would. Like, it seems like a good idea. <laughs> like, it's, I don't, it's so, I, I don't, I know that that advice is not meant that way, but it comes across as super egotistical, right? Yeah. Yes, and um, and hyper individualistic. Right. That that's it. Feels like a lot of what you're talking about is this um, very strong value within our culture to be the individual, um, to uh, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, to not trust anybody, um, and to uh, you can do it on your own mm-hmm. um, kind of thing. So that like when someone's like, "Hey, you're being a jerk. You need to change." Like it's like. You can't. You can't. Change. Right. Like, like, how dare you? You be you. You do you. <laughs> you do but remember, you. I'll do me. Back when I had Facebook, that would that would come up a lot. You would see those things of like, you know, you do you. You know, don't let anybody get you down. Like, what if you is awful? <laughs> like, yeah. you know, like, what if you're living like a really destructive life and you got that advice and you think to yourself like, cool, <laughs> do me. Just seems like terrible blanket advice. So isn't that the ba- uh, isn't that the balance of the of the community and living within the community? Yeah. So you 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 made reference to this hyper individualistic American culture, and and I think part of what why this I think a big part of why social isolation and untangling this is, is being felt as sort of um, I think you described it in the first episode last season as being a national moment right now is because we're actually in this in the mix of this like clash of um, like I think of it as two waves coming together and hitting each other and creating a spike um, if you've ever seen that um, because we're there's all these things floating around about individualism that are at work here but also about the our intense innate desire and need for community and then all of this being filtered through the demise of social institutions to, to play this to play these connecting roles so you know, especially for younger people who don't trust these institutions like at all, it becomes this real question of, well, okay, so I'm like, I intensely desire and want community. I mean, every survey that you do with anybody, especially under the age of 30 is going to confirm this over and over and over again. And, but then when you look at their participation rates in the places where we would normally think that community happens, it feels like a paradox because they don't go to church anymore. They don't participate, you know, in civic organizations like they used to, and they don't vote as much and blah, 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 on and on and on and on, right? Even if they're voting, it's not like a, a part of a larger commitment to this political process. I would even go so far to say socially, they're not reaching out either. Yes. Like they're not getting together with their friends. Right. Like <laughs> bridge club. I mean, no one's playing bridge, but like that's the thing. Like you, even as I say bridge club, we can't like, oh, that's hilarious because there's not like a modern corollary of a bridge club, right? Um, but what's super interesting about that is that the, the this this institutional demise I think is being assessed in the wrong way. So for the last year or so, we've been doing some research at Springtide, a research institute that I'm involved with, which focuses just on young people explicitly. Like that's our mission and goal. There's so a 13 to 25 year olds, and uh, you know they're for the first time. 13 to 25 year olds are experiencing more social isolation than any other group, including the elderly, or we normally think of this as living and residing, um, who still experience high levels of isolation, but for the first time, young people surpass them. And we asked them all kinds of questions, you know, A, to confirm, are you, they, we found, yes, the same thing that Cigna and all these other studies have found about high rates of stress, high rates of loneliness, high rates of isolation. But then we also had like all these hypotheses after we confirmed that of like, 
that must be because you're not going to church as much, right? Or because you're not involved in sports clubs at your school as much. So then we ask them all these questions like, what do you do with your life, right? And really surprisingly to us anyway, we found out that like involvement in any sort of institutional activity had zero buffering protective effects. So like kids who went to church or kids who were involved in sports teams were just as likely to be lonely and isolated as their peers who didn't go. Fascinating to us anyway. I mean, we did not, that was like, that was a big eye opener um, and, you know, sort of sent us down the path of another question, which was, well, okay, does anything like, a, so that hypothesis was wrong. And, and what we found out was that attendance doesn't matter. Participation starts to matter, but what actually matters is relationships. So it doesn't actually matter how often you go to something. It does, you could go every day. Like you might go to your sport, you might go to practice every single day. But if the coach never pays attention to you, if you don't feel like you're connected to the other kids on your team, if you don't have a relationship with them that extends off the field, simply being on a sports team makes no impact at all in terms of as a buffering effect. Going to church and sitting in the pew um, has no Going to youth group on a Wednesday night or a Friday night, um, no impact. But that's a distinct, like, I, I think your, your that is that is a distinct difference, I think, from, like, you know, even 20, 30, 40 years ago where participation and attendance, like, those were the things. Like, you get them to attend and everybody be like, oh, cool, there's other people here like me and I'm not alone in the world and blah, blah, blah. But the, I don't know if it's that relationships automatically came with attendance back then. Um, you know, I think there's still some work to be done there. But regardless of what it used to be like, certainly now is, I think we've got a lot of confirmation that, the, the, the establishment of those relationships that crosses those boundaries, you know, makes all the difference in the world. Talking with my dad just this last month, and he was like, he was like, well, I mean, the reason I liked hunting all these years and like going hunting is just an excuse to get together with my friends yeah. and laugh yeah. and, and have foul language. <laughs> and like, just, and just be, be himself with, with buddies, like yeah. relationships. And I thought about it. My mom's like, husband has gone hunting for the last, he's been hunting with the same group of people every year since he graduated in 1975. For the last five years, he didn't bring a gun. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. Like he'll get halfway there and he's like, oh, oh. Yeah, doesn't matter. It's fine. It's great language towards that. It's, it's not yeah. about attendance. It is about relationship. <clears throat> well, for me, one of the, uh, so like that's, well, one of the things that I do with my students and we do at Springtide all the time and in any of the capacities that I work where I do a lot of research, I'm like, you know, we don't, the last thing we want to be is interesting. We want to be useful, right? That's what we're actually going for here. And so for me, like that finding that, oh, attendance doesn't matter, relationships matter, that's still on the borderline to me of being interesting. So like, what does it matter? Like, what does that tell us, right? Um, for those of us who are in positions where working with youth or others, for a long time, I think we have thought that our job, and maybe it was because it was super effective for a while, was to build programs. Like we did programming, um, whether that's, you know, for an annual fundraiser. I mean, we're sitting here at the Community Foundation, like we're going to put on this annual fundraiser and we're like, that's the way we connect with our community. Um, or if you're a coach and you're like, I got to figure out what the practice schedule looks like and we're going to have this training regimen and blah, blah, blah. Um, or even, even if you're doing an offsite team building event, you think like, I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to do this rope course and this trust fall and you know churches of course are well known for doing programming 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 but i think what this tells us is that it's it's the programs need to take a back seat now to the relationships 
that that we really need to lead with relationships first. And if there's programming that you can get to and want to do and whatever, that's great. Now, it doesn't mean that you can do relationship building um, with customers, with clients, with kids, with the people you serve, et cetera. You can do that in a very intentional and sophisticated way. Um, there's there's lots of examples out there about how to do that. Um, but they all, but none of them are in these like canned program kinds of responses where you sort of build it and the leader fades into the background except to come out every once in a while and say something directly to the people like in a keynote talk or in a sermon or something and then you fade back into the background. Like that doesn't reach. The, if what you want to do is build community and connect people, none of that is effective. What what. What was really great about getting a chance to look at those data and dig into some of the commonalities that places where young people told us that they felt a sense of belonging had in common was getting to actually unpack that into a process. And, and so like we call this the noticed, named, known process. And, and so in order, to, in order for somebody to feel ultimately accepted and belonging, that the very first thing that has to happen is that they have to notice you. You have to, or you have to be noticed, rather. So this can be a simple, like I go to a CrossFit gym here in town, and there are loads of CrossFit gyms all across the country, um, lots here in our city. I go to ours, and even though, like, I'm not, I don't, like, this doesn't get me going personally in a big way. If people know my name, if they say my name correctly, I don't care that much. Um, but it strikes me that, like, every single time I walk through the door, the gym owner, Kyle, like, he says my name. He says hello. He acknowledges the fact that I walked through the door, which... If you've ever tried to go to the gym on a regular basis, that is half the battle, right? Like in some small way, he's, he's just noticing that I'm winning by showing up, right? Which is huge. So that's the first step, noticing somebody. And the second step of naming them where you're, you're really not, and I mean naming them in, the, naming them in this bigger context. Of, of, it's really an invitation in. It's to say like, hey, Tim, we're going to go do this thing. Would you like to come with us? So not just this blanket invitation of like, uh, anybody who's interested is going to the movies later, but it's this, this act of actual inclusion. We go from noticing that you're here to actually naming you, including you, and inviting you, making you a part of the group. And then we proceed from there to being known, which is that I'm not just inviting you to a movie that we're all going to see, but I know what kind of movie you're interested in. And, and so I say like, hey, I, I've been wanting to see this movie. That's right up your alley. When can you go? Because I want to go with you because you're the person that would be like most enjoyable to see this with, right? If we can get through those stages, like if you can get through noticing somebody, naming them and knowing them, then like the tipping point over to acceptance where I don't even like you have different beliefs than I have. That's fine. Like we have this common background and, you know, foundation that we're building from. Uh, maybe we don't agree on everything, but it's cool. Like I accept, I accept you for who you are. Like you are valuable in my life not because you're one more person who's like, you know, sort of in my closed network. So I think the implications for how to actually do that kind of work are substantial when you make that shift. I think it's easy to say, you know, we're going to shift from being program driven to being relationship driven. But when you start unpacking that into this, you know, noticed, named, known um, framework, that it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really substantial in terms of how we do that work. And I think, again, like it can be not just for how you work with young people, but I think there's ramifications here for how you operate as a business. Um, what do you, how do you treat your customers? Are they, you know, are they noticed, named, and known for you as a as an organization, or how do you how do you treat your clients if you're a social service agency? Um, do they feel like a number, or do they feel like their situation is actually known, or are they accepted? And when you were talking about that, in the back of my head, I thought about um, 
Home Depot. They brought in the CEO that kind of turned it around in five to ten years. However, I forget his name, but I listened to a yeah. podcast about him, and and like for every Friday for several years in a row, he would write fifty, a hundred handwritten letters. Yeah. Like that was what his Friday was. Two different employees who had won some sort of recognition from their stores across the United States, and, and it was just like trying to showcase that. But he's also idea. setting the tone across yes. the organization of like yeah. we. Like, like, if I'm spending, you know, a Friday doing this, yeah, you need to know these people. You yeah, need to, yeah, um, yeah. I think that's I think that's awesome, and um, and very useful. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. not just interesting. Josh and I closed the interview by talking about a new segment I'm doing for the podcast's season two called Weld Found Me. This actually came from an idea Josh shared after all the research he's been doing, learning about relationships over programs. Alongside the big compelling stories of connection I'm presenting on Weld Found, why not also host some short features of community members from Weld County, who they are and why they love this place they call home. If we were to leverage what we know about belonging into something like this, and so that's that's, that's why that idea of like the Weld Found Me segment yeah. came up because yes. I was like, yeah. I mean, I'm doing that on the. And that's great. I'm excited to listen. On the one hand, like I think it does this, like whatever. There's it expands your network and it does all these functional marketing things, right? But at the at a more at a more important and broader level. I think that it brings you more into relationship with the people who are listening. Because most of the time, the people that you're interviewing right on the show are not necessarily your core audience. You're, they're the people being profiled for your core audience. Mm-hmm. And so getting, like, using the podcast as, like, a guise almost to get to know them. Um, it's one of my favorite things, actually, about being um, a sociologist and getting to do research is that I, I have this pretense that allows me to ask people questions that otherwise I would have to like spend years with them to get to know. If I can speak honestly for a moment, it's my hope that Weldfound can be more than just a program. I mean, I hope it's an inspiring podcast when it comes to feeling like you belong. But what if it could be actually something that is building community too? So two things that we're doing this season to head towards this, we're calling them Weldfound Us and Weldfound Me. Weld Found Us is what we're calling those times when we're meeting up, like when we got together at the Yucca Fountain last week or the tour of Tower 56 coming up on April 24th. And then for Weld Found Me, you'll be hearing on the podcast from real people in our community with a real passion for why they live here. Today on World Found Me is Sandy Magnuson and her husband, Ken. I joined Sandy and Ken when they were in Briggsdale last November. Sandy is a storyteller and has a group she belongs to called Spellbinders. They live in Greeley and have been here since 2001, originally at UNC as family counselors. They're now retired, but they find themselves in Briggsdale constantly because it's where Sandy grew up. She's been coming to this grade school in Briggsdale and telling tales monthly, And she's been doing this long enough that kids that she met in kindergarten, she's seeing them graduate now. After following Sandy in her storytelling, she and Ken took me on a tour of Briggsdale. We drove by the farm she grew up on. We stopped at a beautiful park. And all the while, we spoke about what it means to really belong to a place. 
It was such a good conversation. We begin with a bit of Sandy's story and a life-changing dream that she had one night in Alabama. Well, um, I uh, was married to someone else, mm-hmm. also from here. Oh, okay. And that marriage didn't do so well. And mm. in the meantime, my parents had moved to Missouri. Okay. And I was um, either running away or searching, who knows. Mm. And I went to Missouri and got my master's in school counseling. And that's where I met Ken. Okay. And then we lived in Alabama for 10 years. We lived in Missouri for another three or four after we married. And then we went to Texas. And um, while we were in Alabama, I had a dream that I died. And to get, they had my funeral and the Holiday Inn. And to get somebody to come, they knocked on the doors. And um, so they could find somebody to attend the funeral. And I sort of began to think about where I wanted to grow old and die. And ultimately decided I wanted to come home. And Ken was happy to do that. I think we who grew up here have a really tight sense of community. Some examples. This is in a book, actually, I wrote it um, for somebody that was writing about altruism. There's a family out here that anonymously gives money to people in a pickle without the expectation to be paid back, but rather that they pay it forward to somebody else. This will help you now, and when you're back on your feet, we only ask you to do the same for somebody else. Um, I have no idea how many people they've done that for. They did it for me long before I met Ken after a home fire. And Ken and I have adopted that. Very much we've adopted that um, practice. Um, There was a blizzard in 1949. um, Probably hit Kansas, too. This had been long before you were born. And for a month, people couldn't get out of their yards. And this is country. This is not Briggsdale. This is rural America at its best. Um, A man um, out about five miles from town Um, had come into town. He had a tractor that was out where we just were at the ball field to light the field for, he was was a baseball player himself and a farmer. And he saw the storm coming. He left his car, pickup, whatever he had, took his tractor, stopped at the little store across the way, picked up feed and food, and headed home in the country, stopping to be sure people had feed and coal. And one family was out of coal and out of food. And we assumed they would have died had it not been for Andy. And Andy, who we just lost a year or two ago, he was 99, he didn't ever think that was grand. It's what you do in the community. And those kinds of stories, I think it's important for us to continue to tell for the little ones. That's a Briggsdale story, but it's also, I bet, a Kansas story. I bet it's a Wyoming story, different versions. And a few years ago, I did create that into a story to tell the kids. I remember even going to town when I was a kid, and we'd hear, oh, those Brickstow kids are in town. And we, like the little city kids, (laughs) Mm -hmm. that's mythology. Yeah. The difference between intelligence and common sense. Yeah. Yeah. But but also, when we got acquainted, we found out. We liked them. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And I think that's a big piece of let's sit down and get acquainted and find out we do have things in common. Mm-hmm. A lot. Yeah. And oh, we're kind of interesting with our differences, mm-hmm. but but it's sitting down and relationships. Yeah. I think it's easier if you're not related. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 I think so too. We didn't know our neighbors. In Texas. In in Texas, we knew two or three close ones yeah, around, but yeah. then it jumped to the university. Yeah. Our um, community was our work, yeah, our students. Our students. Yeah. And somewhat similar to that, even at uh, uh, Missouri and uh, Northwest, mm-hmm. we, we didn't know our neighbors so much. We knew our nearest neighbor, mm-hmm. but not anything like we. Not like really, not like Glenmere. Yeah. Now you do? Yeah, yeah, Glenmere's a tight neighborhood. Mm -hmm. We look out for each other like Mm -hmm. they do out here. I, uh, we've been called in the middle of the night and we would call in the middle of the night and think nothing of it. I didn't grow up in as tight a community as Sandy did. We were, um, we met our neighbors only once or possibly twice during the year. They were a mile away. So the only community we had on a tighter basis was church and I was driving 10 miles from where we lived. So I never experienced what Sandy experienced here. Now that I'm here, I'm experiencing it. What's it been like to experience it in the last 15, 18 years? It's been... (laughs) It's been great. I don't know how to really describe that. Special thank you to Dave Farrell, a professor at Ames Community College, who helped with sound engineering for this episode. And thank you to our guests, Dr. Josh Packard. You can see more of his work at springtideresearch.org, and Sandy and Ken Magnuson. You can email me, tim at weldcommunityfoundation.org, if you'd like to contact Sandy about the storytelling group she runs called Spellbinders. Music for this episode was by Giants and Pilgrims, an art and music project I lead with my wife, Bettany Coons. Thanks again for listening to Weld Found.